And so it's a perfect opportunity to partner between the genomics world and the pathology world. And, and that's been happening all over the place. And, you know, I, I have a primary appointment in the pathology department uh, and you know, work there as part of uh, bringing genetic testing to pathology. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There seems to be quite a bit of crossover between genomics and pathology, and this seems like a trend that will continue in the future as genomics data is more incorporated into pathology results. My guest today is Dr. Heidi Rehm. Dr. Rehm is a professor of pathology and co-director of the Program for Medical and Population Genetics at the Broad Institute. We're going to learn all about the use of genomics in pathology, and we'll also talk about the Precision Health Meeting coming up later this month. All right, here's Dr. Heidi Rehm. You became interested in biology at, at a pretty young age. I mean, I think you were a little little kid, and I believe this was partly because of your father and then partly because of the environment where you grew up. So can you kind of tell me about that, how you became interested in the field of biology? Um, so yes, I, I, you know, did become interested in biology from an early age. My family always went camping and did a lot of outdoors activities. And I, my father was a biology teacher and had a constant array of reptiles and other uh, creatures that were in our house. And and so that was one of the attractions, um, it, you know, as a young kid um, to biology and, and that field. Okay, that makes sense. And then how did that, like going into school, how did that sort of develop for you? Like, did that interest grow? And, and how did that happen? Yeah, I think over time, my interest more in the molecular side of things, as opposed to the ecology environment side of things certainly grew. I, you know, was interested in not just biology, but all aspects of science and math and computers. But over time, I, as I learned about genetics and, you know, essentially the, the underpinnings of, of how our human bodies work, I became more and more interested in the genetic aspects of it, as well as um, interested in how mutations lead to human disease and how things can go wrong and, and fascinated by, you know, using that as a tool to understand the mechanisms of pathophysiology um, in our in in the process of disease as far as genetics like when did you first learn about that field and you know when you started learning about it did you become interested in it like right away or did that take some time yeah i think i first started learning about it in high school biology i had a small project that was related to microbial genetics that, that never ended up working, if I recall. But, um, but it, it started teaching me about uh, DNA and uh, the, the sort of basic genetic code. And I, I really just was fascinated by the simplicity in some ways of it. You know, our DNA is just four different bases and this, you know, stretch of, of DNA makes all of these genes and which makes RNA, which makes protein, that central dogma. And it just seemed so logical. And, and I could, you know, 
follow it. And I could, you know, I, I just wanted to understand more of all of the genes and all of the proteins and how they were working in the body. And, and that sort of basic fundamentals of genetics was fascinating to me. Okay. That makes sense. I can kind of relate to that a little bit. I mean, learning about genetics, kind of the basics of it in high school, like you did, it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. All right. Now you went on then to earn a PhD in genetics uh, from Harvard. And then you, you studied the genetic basis of hearing loss. And I'm curious about that. Like, how did you become interested in, in hearing loss? Well, you know, and when I started my PhD, I was just broadly interested in human genetics and human disease. And so I rotated, you know, through laboratories that were studying any aspect of human genetics. But when I joined Cynthia Morton's lab uh, at the Brigham Women's Hospital, her lab studied two different disorders. One was uh, hereditary hearing loss, and the other was uterine fibroid cancer. Um, and the project I happened to work on was related to inherited hearing loss. It was actually a family from Costa Rica that had both hearing loss, but also congenital blindness and a vascular disease. And so I, you know, began studying this family and trying to identify the gene involved in their disorder. But I also was immersed generally in the field of hereditary hearing loss because Cynthia's lab studied that field. And I just became completely fascinated by the whole field of hearing loss and, you know, and the actual inner ear organ, the cochlea, it's, it's an anatomically beautiful organ in terms of how its structure is set up to achieve the ability to hear. You know, I, I used to contrast it with the brain. The brain I sort of view as this amorphous blob that is really difficult to sort of understand the complexity of what our brain does. But if you look at the, the anatomy of the cochlear, you know, hearing organ, you can completely understand how we're able to hear and process sound. And that, that sort of elegance of the inner ear was really attractive to me. I just, I wanted to understand every gene that was involved and how the whole system worked. Um, and also all of the forms of hearing loss due to defects in the many genes involved. Are you still involved in, in congenital hearing loss uh, uh, somewhat, or did you, are you kind of out of that field? I'm no longer, you know, heavily focused on the field of hearing loss, although um, as part of the clinical genome resource program, my grant that we have does support expert curation in the field of hearing loss. And so we are still curating genes and variants and their role in, you know, hereditary hearing loss. And so I still maintain a foot in that area, but to some extent, in order to move into the world of genomics, uh, where we're sequencing every gene and every individual, you know, necessitated broadening, obviously, to all genetic disorders is, you know, now what I focus on. I want to talk about the Broad Institute for a, a few minutes, because you're a uh, you're in, you're an institute member there. And can you tell me how did you get involved with the Broad Institute? So early on, I you know, started attending seminars at the Broad. There's a, um, a weekly seminar series uh, called the Medical and Population Genetics 
seminar. Um, and I would go and listen to the talks and interact with other faculty and trainees. And it was just a, a just a wonderfully scientifically rich environment. Uh, and I started, you know, to get to know different investigators there um, and become a part of that community. And then, you know, I think two areas that really solidified my deep involvement at the Broad Institute were really when Daniel MacArthur and I started a rare disease program um, and received an NIH grant to really build an entire program called the Broad Center for Mendelian Genomics. Uh, and we started to really focus on that, hired a whole team. Everyone was located at the Broad. And so that was one, you know, really rich environment that we created there that really uh, allowed me to spend a lot more time there. Uh, and the other was my involvement in the clinical lab at the Broad, where I became heavily involved and, and now am the medical director and the clinical lab director of the Broad's clinical lab. And that relationship, as we began launching tests that were CLIA certified to be able to offer to patients, was another major area. And since then, I've gotten you know even deeper involved pretty much in all aspects of the Broad and, and now co-direct the medical and population genetics program with Ben Neal. Can you tell me about that, being the director of the a clinical lab? Like what what is kind of, I don't want to say like job duties, but I guess, yeah, what, 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 what are the job duties? Sure. So, you know, I got first got involved in clinical laboratory genetics actually at Mass General Brigham when I built a, a lab from scratch starting in 2002 and, and directed a lab there for about 16 years. And in that context, you know, we built lots of different genetic tests, brought new technologies into clinical use and did soup to nuts in terms of running the tests and then interpreting the data and writing clinical reports and signing them out and sending them to, to patients and physicians. At the Broad Institute, we've been a little more focused on aspects of, of the genetic testing that are really the technology side to date. And so there it was more about, can we launch technology using the the incredible scale at the Broad um, from being part of the Human Genome Project and running, you know, very large sequencing projects at scale that allowed us to improve the technology, allowed us to run, you know, <laughs> just enormous scale. And then using that as a way to then partner with other clinical counterparts, other clinical labs, including the lab I ran at Mass General Brigham, we would partner and the Broad would run the genome or exome sequencing and the clinical lab I ran at, at Mass General Brigham would do the interpretation side. And so we are, you know, initially entirely focused on the technical component and then partnering both with pharmaceutical companies and biotech uh, that wanted to run clinical trials, as well as uh, more academic and commercial laboratories doing, you know, standard diagnostic genetic testing. Uh, and we've, you know, continued to partner in both the, re the clinical research and clinical diagnostic space with other parties. Um, just recently, we are now starting to get into the full end-to-end -end process where we've hired a larger clinical team to be able to actually fully interpret and sign out cases. Um, and, and we're getting close to, to launching a product probably this fall. Yeah, it seems like the, the field of, of genomics is rapidly expanding. I mean, is that kind of your experience in the last few years? It's, it's definitely been rapidly expanding in terms of 
our knowledge of the genetic basis of human disease, our ability to apply the technology in robust ways to generate answers for patients. I think where I've been more disappointed is the lack of of insurance coverage and embracing it within the medical field. And in fact, one of the reasons I left my position as the director of the laboratory for molecular medicine at Mass General Brigham and moved into a role as a chief genomics officer at Mass General Hospital was really because I felt the need to address some of the earlier barriers to the use of genetics in the practice of medicine that weren't at the laboratory side. We could run an entire genome and interpret it and give results back to patients, but many patients who needed those tests were not getting them. Uh, And it, it relates to a number of challenges. Some are on the education side in terms of physicians understanding how to use genetics in their daily practice. Some is on the availability of genetic counselors and other support staff to actually order genetic testing and interpret the results and support the families getting those results back and that whole piece of it. Uh, and then a, you know, a third major barrier is the you know, payment, the insurance coverage of this testing uh, for those patients who, who need it. And, and that's, it's, it's getting better, but it's still been lagging. So as, as far as the education part that you mentioned, you know, educating uh, clinicians and genetic counselors, uh, how do you go about doing that? Right. So when I first came to Mass General to take on this role as chief genomics officer, I worked with Katrina Armstrong, who's the chair of medicine at that time. And we really put together a what we called the genomic medicine implementation team, where we uh, identified an individual in every division and department uh, in the hospital that had the potential to use genetics and sort of asked the chair to designate a physician in their department to play a role and really began bringing everyone together on a monthly basis to exchange approaches to supporting genetics in their practices. And and I met with every department and division to understand how they were using genetics at the time, what were the barriers. We I hired a a team of genetic counselors and genetic counseling assistants, uh, and we deployed those to assist different clinics in launching testing, uh, teaching them how to do it offering floating genetic counselors who could help with sessions if they had a low volume need or splitting counselors across clinics, um, all different ways that we could support that real-time engagement and and supporting the, the ordering practices. We've also launched sort of educational modules within the electronic health record. We launched an e-consult service in preventive genomics to help answer questions that the physicians have, particularly in primary care. We launched a preventive genomics clinic to take those um, patients that didn't have symptoms of disease, but were at risk because they've kind of fell through the cracks in our healthcare system. And then we are also launching a a genomics course for both primary care and and non-genetic specialty practices to really teach them how to use genetics and the important elements. So so a lot of different aspects of of how we can come in and help support the clinical practices in the hospital. I like how you're you're talking about sort of a, it's like a collaborative sort of effort, identifying different people in different areas and working with them to move this project forward. And you mentioned earlier about some of the partnerships that you've created as well. So it seems like this is something that's very important to you. Absolutely. 
And, and, and in fact, you're a proponent of free data exchange among researchers, which is another sort of the, a collaborative effort as well. Uh, can you tell me about this? Why, why is this, uh, the, the free data exchange important to you? Yeah, from an early on when I was directing a clinical lab at Mass General Brigham, it became clear that the biggest bottleneck in offering genetic testing was actually the interpretation of, of genetic variants that we'd find during testing. And most of the variants we'd find, we'd never seen. Um, and I realized that most genetic variation that actually results in disease is incredibly rare. And the only way that we will understand you know, the role, or not the only way, but a major way that we will understand the role of these variants in disease is to amass enough data from enough different patients who have those variants to study how they segregate in families, whether they occur de novo, you know, the kinds of evidence that we build in a genetics environment to be able to say whether a variant is actually pathogenic or not. And the best way to do that is to share that evidence collectively from the different laboratories. Also, you know, there are there is evidence out there in publications, and I was realizing that every lab was doing the same searches for the same information and amassing it, and it's really labor-intensive. And we felt that if we could all share in that burden, uh, if you see a variant and you do all the research to collect all the literature and evidence together, well, share that with everyone else. And if they do the same, we can all collectively benefit. And that really became the basis of the data sharing within the ClinVar database that's maintained by NCBI. And we made a major push you know, with the first grant I obtained for the clinical genome resource, we made a major push to really engage the clinical labs in this data sharing process so that we could all benefit and improve the field. Okay. And, and the database that you mentioned, I mean, is, you're, you're talking about, I mean, there's two, I guess. So it's ClinGen and ClinVar, right? Actually, they're not two separate databases. So ClinVar okay. is a variant database. It's actually maintained by NCBI and NIH, and there's a team there that takes in submissions and posts them so everyone can access them. ClinGen, I really think about as a consortium of people that are developing standards for how we classify variants, curate genes, amass knowledge, and evaluate that evidence to say whether a variant is pathogenic or determine whether a gene is, has a role in disease. And we manage a huge infrastructure of tools and people. There's uh, over 2,000 people involved in ClinGen to do all this curation. But once we curate a variant, we then put it into ClinVar so that everybody can access it. And if we curate a gene, because ClinVar is a variant database, we also have a gene database. And that, the clinicalgenome.org website is where all our gene curation information is. And now we also send it to GenCC, a new database we launched last year, um, where we're taking in curations from lots of different sources. I like to call it the ClinVar for genes, <laughs> um, because it's everybody's claim and opinion on a gene and whether it's involved in disease. And so we ClinGen sends all its gene curations to GenCC and its variant curations to ClinVar. And those are two databases whereas ClinGen is really this massive uh, consortium managing a lot of work. Okay, and all of this is free access for any, any researcher, right? Absolutely, and not just researchers, but 
commercial entities. There's no barriers to anyone accessing it. No payment required. This is really the community coming together to generate the resources we all need to conduct research, to offer clinical diagnostics, um, and to eventually support the treatment and, you know, of of genetic disorders. That sounds amazing. Okay, so I want to talk about Matchmaker Exchange because it seems like that's sort of a spinoff of this database as well, right? There's some relationship there. Okay. Early on, we discovered that uh, there are still many genes to be implicated in disease. And in fact, there still are many genes to be implicated. And similar to the problems we were having identifying variants and figuring out all the patients that had a particular variant, we're also having challenges getting enough patients with defects in the same gene to build enough evidence to implicate new genes in disease. So the matchmaker exchange became a one of the first federated genomic platforms where rare disease groups from around the world could enter a gene based on finding a defect in a particular patient with a rare disease and enter that gene name into a node, a database, uh, and then query all of the other databases to say, have you identified a patient with a defect in this gene and what's their phenotype? And so the system matches on gene as the primary mode of matching, but it also then matches on phenotype and ranks the match between the two or more cases in terms of their phenotype overlap, which helps determine whether it's a valid match or an invalid match. Okay. That, that's interesting. So then these rare diseases from anywhere around the world, people can collaborate on, on those as well, right? That's correct. And in fact, it has formed you know thousands of collaborations <laughs> through that process of matching, kind of like playing go uh, fish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this seems like all, you know, all of these things we just talked about mm-hmm. seems very like a more efficient way to conduct research and you know, it's more collaborative and it, it like it's going to push the science forward at, at a faster rate, it seems like. Absolutely. I, I imagine that's the goal. Absolutely. And although, you know, initially when we launched it, we were really focused on the research community that was doing gene discovery, like our Center for Mendelian Genomics at the Broad and many other centers around the world doing research to find new genes. However, very quickly, the clinical labs offering whole exome and genome sequencing, we're identifying candidates for new genes involved in rare disease as well. And they began to use um, these platforms, particularly Gene Matcher, the node at, um, at Johns Hopkins, where anyone can just go in and register an account and submit a gene. Um, and we just published a, a series of papers after supporting the platform for seven years. And those three clinical labs alone implicated over a thousand new genes in rare disease over the since we launched the platform. So just a, a tremendous amount of use of the platform, both in re- research and in clinical diagnostics. Wow, that's incredible. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Heidi Rehm. We'll be right back. LabVine invites you to their Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School to help laboratory professionals gear up for the future of healthcare. This is a three-day online event taking place August 29th through the 31st. Day one focuses on change, transformation, and culture. Day two on staff optimization. And day three on implementation and change management. 
I'll be speaking at this event as well as a few other people who you have heard on this podcast. You can register for free for Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School by following the link in the show notes. Here at the People of Pathology podcast, we're passionate about giving leaders in healthcare and pathology the spotlight. And this is why I'm so excited to tell you about the AGBT Precision Health Conference, which is taking place September 8th through the 10th in San Diego, California. AGBT is bringing together today's global leaders and innovators in genome biology and technology to discuss the future of precision medicine. The agenda includes an impressive number of speakers who are all successful in their own right. These are voices like Angene Music, director of the All of Us Research Program, and Yuan Ashley, director at Stanford University, who are leading conversations at the event. If you're looking to make an impact on genomic science, visit agbt.org to reserve your spot at the AGBT Precision Health Conference today or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to Dr. Heidi Rehm on the People of Pathology podcast. So one of your many roles, and we just talked about just a couple of them, but one of them is, so you're a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School. Now, it seems like, especially lately, there's a bit of, quite a bit of overlap between pathology and genomics, and that seems to be increasing as well as we're getting into more molecular pathology. Uh, can, can you talk about this overlap? Sure. You know, I think historically, genomics built out of research and large-scale programs more focused on the research side and began building genome centers to support uh, genomic research. Meanwhile, pathology has really led the field of laboratory medicine. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of both basic testing of all types, I, I think what happened was over time, the need to really merge these two worlds of genomics research and laboratory medicine. Um, and pathology is really well positioned to be able to embrace any type of laboratory medicine, but the background and really understanding how to run genomic testing uh, at scale still sits in a lot of these genome centers. And so it's a perfect opportunity to partner between the genomics world and the pathology world. And, and that's been happening all over the place. And, you know, I, I have a primary appointment in the pathology department uh, and you know, work there as part of uh, bringing genetic testing to pathology. And, and there's been more focus on somatic cancer, which is a huge area of focus in pathology, is obviously cancer diagnostics. Uh, so some of the pathology departments have been have more heavily focused on somatic cancer testing, whereas more of the germline genetic diagnostics has probably been more so in the commercial industry. And that's been kind of the division a little bit. Do, do you feel like there's any sort of, I guess, resistance in pathology to in incorporating more genomics aspects to it? I don't think there's any resistance in pathology to embrace genetics in the, in the course okay. of medicine uh, and the work that's done in pathology. I think the challenges are how can we make genetic testing as cost-effective as possible? And there is something to be said for the scale that you need to offer genetic diagnostics in order to really capitalize on the, the efficiency and the cost reduction by scale. And I think that has what is what is challenging the ability to offer a full service genetic diagnostics suite of, of tests in every 
academic pathology department. And that's one of the reasons I think that there's been more testing consolidated in, in these large commercial entities is just the ability to, to bring that scale. And also there's been some major practical issues around billing and reimbursement. The major commercial labs are able to cap the out-of-pocket expense for the patients. And that has been a huge benefit for physicians who don't want surprise bills going to their patients. Uh, where when you're in a large medical center where the patient's bills come from both the visit and the tests and all sorts of things, and they have an inability to predict what bill is going to get sent to the patient. Whereas if you use one of these external commercial labs where they agree to cap the out-of-pocket expense, they can say, well, we don't know what you're going to be charged, but it won't be more than $250. Whereas in the academic medical center, they said, well, it could be $25,000. We don't know. <laughs> and you can imagine, and I've had you know situations where patients have gotten bills for $25,000 because of the sort of wow. craziness of our healthcare system and how insurance billing and rate negotiations work, and the codes that are used in the genetic diagnostic setting, it's just a, a complete mess. And so this ability to cap out-of-pocket expense has been such a huge attraction to, as you might imagine, to the patients and physicians who are supporting those patients. Yeah. It, like you said, that does sound like a, a mess, and there's quite a bit of work to do there. Yet, do you think that, like you mentioned, having a full suite of genetic testing available like is that in in your view is that kind of the pathology of the future that it should have that that type of testing available yeah i think you know we're we're quickly moving to the use of genomic platforms for all germline genetic tests given the rarity of so many genetic disorders and the difficulty in identifying which gene might be at play in a given patient's phenotype, it, it's making more and more sense to just sequence the entire genome. And, and in fact, many labs that offer panel tests for a specific condition, like a hearing loss panel or a cardiomyopathy panel, they're often running those tests on a backbone that is either an exome backbone or gradually moving to a full genome backbone. That way they can support one test or maybe two tests but gradually, quickly add content to their panels over time. And th that allows you know, a more rapid evolution of, of adding content as new genes are discovered and it just less maintenance for constantly making new panels. You're uh, a member of the organizing committee for the Precision Health Meeting. And I know we wanted to talk about this. So first of all, how did you get involved and become a part of the organizing committee for this meeting? Yeah, so I was um, originally asked to speak at the AGBT conference, which is a you know genome technology conference, the, the primary um, AGBT meeting. And there was a lot of interest and excitement about the clinical aspects of genomics when I spoke, and I was invited onto the organizing committee of that particular meeting. And we, you know, we're bringing some clinical content over the years to, to that meeting, but there was some pushback. You know, they really wanted to keep that a primarily, you know, technology 
driven meeting. And so we made the decision to split off into a separate meeting, the AGBT Precision Health Meeting, which was going to, you know, really capitalize still on the genomic technology advances in the field, but really be able to much more, you know, deliberately focus on how that translates into precision health. Uh, and so that, you know, was the origin of this meeting. It's been a wonderful meeting to bring thought leaders uh, across the different disciplines from somatic cancer to germline diagnostics to health economics to a therapeutic development. There's so many dimensions of the clinical side of this space. Uh, and it's really a, a wonderful opportunity to bring all these thought leaders and the field together, really focused on the translational aspects of genomic medicine. How many years has the Precision Health meeting been running? That's a great question. I think we're probably on about year five, although it could be slightly off there. <laughs> okay, I see. And do you think that, I mean, imagine when, when it started, it was, you know, everybody was just kind of getting a feel for things, but do you think this meeting has evolved uh, during that time? It's definitely continued to evolve. You know, we've all, all meetings have suffered a bit in the pandemic and we had to, you know, manage it as a virtual meeting one year and then a hybrid meeting last year. And now I think we're finally, you know, focusing on back, back to the way it was, although as we all know, the pandemic's not over. Um, so, you know, it has suffered a bit, you know, in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. But, you know, this year is looking to be just, uh, you know, another amazing meeting with an amazing lineup of speakers. And I'm very excited to go. And it's also, you know, always held in a, just a really amazing place with great weather, great food, great, you know, um, ability to interact. It's a, it's a slightly smaller meeting, which is nice because you just you get to see everyone, you get to interact and both trainees and senior faculty and all, you know, be in one place together. Yeah, I think this year it's in what San Diego, right? That's right. Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to argue with a place like that. Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be heading there. Can you talk a little bit about the format of the meeting? Like, how is how is it set up? Sure. So we have you know a number of plenary sessions where we have both invited speakers as well as some abstract selected speakers. We have a few uh, sponsorship talks as well from the many sponsors that, that support the meeting. We have poster sessions with nice um, drinks and uh, appetizers and desserts uh, there. All of the meals are together as a group, lunches and dinners um, and receptions. So it's, you know, it's a, a series of talks, but also a lot of networking um, opportunity to um, both around the poster sessions and the various uh, food events, shall we say. <laughs> okay, I see. So this kind of goes back to the sort of uh, collaboration aspect that we talked about earlier, which I know is important to you. Is that something you sort of brought to this meeting to have kind of uh, a focus on the networking uh, aspect? Well, I wouldn't say it's unique to just this meeting. That's certainly true of the primary AGBT meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the reason we all go to these meetings in person is just as much about the networking opportunities as it is to listen to talks. Because honestly, if it was just listening to talks, you could do that as a, a virtual meeting. But, you know, I, I think both the Precision Health meeting and many of the conferences that we all travel to 
a lot of the focus does need to be about that networking aspect and ability to strike up conversations that aren't planned, that allow you to explore collaborations. And so certainly that is something that that I value highly um, at this meeting and, and other meetings that I attend. And we, we certainly make sure that there is time for that in many um, aspects of this meeting. How, how does this meeting and other meetings like it, how does that promote technological advances in genomics? So it, it's, it's an opportunity for those individuals who've been using the latest technologies to share not only about those technologies, but their applications. So I think that's where, you know, we really focus on the implementation of the technology into clinical practice. And so attendees get to both hear about the new technology, but they're also seeing it applied in a very clinical way. And that could be in a diagnostic setting. It could be for discovery of new causes of genetic disease. It could be in population screening to detect you know, risk for disease. Uh, and that's both analytical approaches like polygenic risk scores and are they being utilized effectively and are there clinical trials showing that they're useful or not? You know, those are the dialogues that we're having is the ability to not only see the new technologies and the new analytical approaches, but also see their application into the you know healthcare setting. Okay. I see. Yeah. Th- this sounds like a, a very interesting, uh, interesting environment, interesting meeting. I will uh, include a link in the show notes to it so people can uh, check it out if they would like. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, so uh, personalized medicine, and this is something that we've heard about a lot lately, and it seems like genomics and pathology data are, are kind of a key to personalized medicine. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. You know, the, the genomic data is not that worthwhile if you don't have the clinical data to accompany it. Um, and I've been involved in the All of Us research program. And in that program, you know, we're recruiting individuals and we're sequencing their genomes and developing other omic data. But a key aspect of that is to get permission to take in their medical record and continue to bring it in longitudinally over time. And all of that, both clinical phenotype data, pathology data, all of the data that we can then correlate our genomic and other omic data to is how we learn from it and how we can make differences in the practice of medicine. So then correlating all that data together, is that kind of how you would envision the personalized medicine of the future? Absolutely. You know, today, when you go to your physician, I think a lot of patients just assume that the experiences of every patient that shows up in that clinic are being somehow amassed behind the scenes to inform their care. The truth of it is that it's not as effective as we would like it to be. Um, What happens is there are clinical trials that are published that then develop the standards for how you apply that to your own patients. But sometimes those clinical trials aren't really practical. There are specific ways they were run, and you want to really see that empiric application of genomics and what's really happening every day with every patient who shows up in clinic. And so in the, in the future, I believe that every patient's data will be collected in real time and you'll, a physician will be able to make use of that information on an ongoing basis to continually evolve and learn from that information to the next patient they see. And 
you know, and it's simultaneously about reaccessing deep knowledge bases that can actually, you know, utilize the information and to improve the care, both individualized care and population care of each patient. Okay. I like it. Yeah. That's, that's a great vision for personalized medicine of the future. Uh, Dr. Reen, this has been really interesting conversation. I enjoyed learning more about you and I appreciate your time. Dr. Heidi Reem, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Great big thanks to Dr. Heidi Reem. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. So, so my research is really focused on applying, developing new molecular assays and strategies to analyze pathology specimens. And typically when you do molecular analysis, analyses on tissue samples, it's typically in tissue that has known tumor in it. So you know the patient has cancer and you submit a chunk of cancer uh, to have the DNA extracted and you're looking for mutations that can predict response to treatment. So that's that's typically, that's the most common approach um, when you're doing molecular analyses on, on tissue samples. Uh-huh. But my, my research really wants to ask a different question, which is, does this tissue or cytology sample have cancer in it in the first place? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? So it's less about detecting mutations that could predict response to treatment in patients who you already know have cancer and more about asking, does this patient have cancer in this tissue sample to begin with? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? You can hear more from Dr. Jonathan Dudley about his work in molecular pathology in episode 22. Okay, so this was really interesting to learn more about genomics and how it might be utilized in pathology. As we said in the interview, this is an area that is rapidly expanding, and I think will continue to do so as personalized medicine becomes more the standard. Also, one of the major themes would be that of collaboration. And this is all over in Dr. Reem's work. I mean, it's collaboration between genomics and pathology, between researchers within genomics, with the various databases that she's part of, as well as the Precision Health Meeting. I mean, we talked a lot about that as well. And this is important. That type of collaboration is what pushes research forward most efficiently and most quickly. And it's ultimately best for patient care as well. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.